Welcome to Audio Mission. I'm Trevor Smith introducing a special edition about the value of long-term mission. It's something that's becoming less fashionable, even derided, but we'll be hearing from two long-term CMS mission partners and from the Anglican Bishop of Bolivia, himself a long-term mission partner from Singapore, who thinks their contribution is vital. First, we travel to Chiwoko Hospital in Uganda, where mission partner Cory Vadine leads the Women's Health Department, the biggest in the hospital, with a particular focus on helping people give birth safely. Talking to Jeremy Woodham, she reminds us of the stark realities of getting treatment in Uganda. Apologies for the siren in the background in the start, but it does seem rather appropriate. Death in childbirth is the third biggest killer in sub-Saharan Africa after HIV-AIDS and respiratory diseases like like TB and pneumonia. And you also said that the biggest cause of death in childbirth was bleeding. Mm. And then your number one root cause of that was poverty. Mm. So tell us why does poverty cause people to bleed more in childbirth? Poverty leads to various different things. It leads to uh, poor health generally. It leads to uh, poor diets. People have lack of nutrients in their body, vitamins. Uh, their blood count is usually very low, um, which makes them more susceptible to other diseases, for example, malaria. And then also, if the people who are poor have many children, they have far too many children to compare to what their body can cope with. And then if you have too many children, if you have more than five children, it is clinically known that you are at increased risk of bleeding. Then if again, if your body is weak and your blood count is not up to full level, if you have that bleeding, it comes more easily to a critical level. And in many places, blood transfusion is not uh, available or in limited cases. So um, again, if people bleed in the West, there is drugs, there is blood transfusion, there is intensive care, there there is none of that. There's some fascinating um, sort of cultural issues around uh, women's status mm. and, and having children in Uganda that's also a contributing factor. Yes, the, the women's status is, is to have babies, that's their primary role in life. And um, for those couples of women who don't have a baby, their husband, most husbands will find another wife or leave them to behind altogether socially. Um, it never crosses anybody's mind that the cause of the women's not being able to have children could actually lie with the husband rather than with the wife themselves. That's a, a complete taboo uh, subject. Uh, many times, uh, if they're unable to have children, is caused by infections, which almost inevitably are caused by the husband not being faithful. So there's a lot of social issues around that issue as well. But for the women, it is really a difficult situation not to have a children. And most, of, a lot of them will actually first become pregnant before they agree to marry their prospective husbands. Now, in the UK, mm. when a woman is pregnant, mm. And in the later stages of pregnancy, yeah. everyone asks her, have you got your bag packed? Yes. The hospital bag mm. that you've got to take yes. with everything you need for the yes. hospital. Now, someone coming to Chiwoko or uh, any hospitals yeah. in, in Uganda, probably, um, what's in their hospital bag? 
in their hospital bag will be blankets, bedding, basins for washing, cooking equipment, food, uh, baby things. So they, the things. Have, so, so they have to bring everything to look after themselves yes. while they're there. Yes. And they never, they, they cannot come on their own. They have to bring uh, most commonly a female companion uh, to look after them and to do all their cooking and the washing and the whatever for them. It's just astonishing to reflect on that. And of course, yeah. just also the fact that there is no ambulance to call. No. Um, if you go into labour miles and miles away from the nearest hospital. Um, yes. Most women come on the back of a motorbike. Now, that might be not sounding too bad, but if you're in a village in, in the, what they call deep in the village and it's in the middle of the night and the roads are bad and you've already been in labor for eight hours and you have contractions and it rains and then to climb on the back of a motorbike to sit there for three hours till you reach the hospital it becomes a different story um, we've been quite lucky last year we only had three mothers dying in Chivoko which is very little compared to um, I spoke to a doctor in Kampala Hospital recently who said they had three di three mothers dying every week. Now, we mentioned HIV already at the top of the yeah. list of, mm -hmm. of killers. Also, 11% of mothers that you're dealing with yeah. will have HIV. That's correct. And yes. It's another programme you're uh, involved with yes. is trying to prevent that transmission yes. onto their babies. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, we... Um, Mothers are, who attend antenatal clinic will get tested antenatally whether they're positive or negative for HIV. If they're positive, they are given um, anti-HIV drugs, which will reduce the likelihood of their babies having um, HIV. Then after birth, also the babies will get treatment for a, a certain length of time. Last year, we did not have any, in our program, we did not have any positive babies. No mother's child transmission no. in that program. That's that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to know: is there a, a sort of ripple effect out yes, from Chihuahua? Yes, definitely. Because especially our midwives, on average, they only stay two years uh, before they start looking at other jobs. Mainly because of we don't pay them as well as government hospitals. And again, if they start a family themselves, schooling in, in Chihuahua is a real issue for children. Um, social life, there is really nothing in terms of social life, uh, in terms of going to a restaurant or a cafe or a, a film or something like that. So people who have especially come from the big cities and are used to that lifestyle will not easily settle in a, in a rural place. Mm. And that's all over Africa, a big challenge. Mm. Um, same for doctors, you know, they've, they've been studying in universities in towns, they have a good life there they come to a rural area. So unless the people themselves feel called and have that sense of mission for, to their own people, and we have doctors like that, uh, uh, I have, I'm very glad to say, we have a number of Ugandan doctors who f feel that God is calling them to be in Shivoko and take a step back from the high salaries, etc. And they do a fantastic job. We are tremendously grateful to God for the amazing strides forward Corrie's been able to make at Chiwoko. Why not stop and pray right now for all those women at such great risk in Uganda and many other countries around our world?
and for more doctors and nurses prepared to give up high salaries in the cities to serve in the less attractive rural areas. Now to another part of Africa, South Sudan, and an interview with Canon Tricia Wick that marks a milestone in her mission life. She's recently returned to the UK after a decade in Maridi Diocese in South Sudan, and she told Jeremy Woodham about some of the things she's been through in that time, and her latest phase of work at Chima Christian Institute. It seems there's been a real theme of death and resurrection in the things you've been doing in, in South Sudan. Yes, that's right. The... TEE programme, Theological Education by Extension, that programme in the province had almost died before I went out there. So one of my roles when they put me into that position was to bring it back to life again. So I had 11 years working with the TEE programme um, in 10 dioceses and we made many changes. We wrote new manuals, trained all sorts of new people and whatever. But we did successfully revive it. I had about 1,500 students, something like that, uh, some of whom are now bishops or other people in high positions. Uh, so it's a bit sad when the Archbishop eventually changed the structures of the TEE programme and gave it to the theological colleges to run. And because most of the colleges were under-resourced and struggling themselves, it was actually very difficult for them to take the TEE on. So unfortunately that, that one died again. Um, my second role was discipleship training, uh, which didn't really exist in the diocese, so that was uh, a new challenge, a pioneering job really to develop that. And then, uh, more latterly, as uh, principal of Chama Christian Institute, and the institute was on a very low ebb when I took over, and um, probably should have been closed, but the bishop put me in there to bring it back to life again. So we went from 12 students up to nearly 100 by the time I left. So yes, all my roles really were trying to pick up something that had almost died and bring it back to life again. So tell us a little bit more about that, the, the recent work then at, at Chima. What have been some of the highlights of that? Back in 2010, before I was principal, they introduced some other courses other than just theology. So it wasn't just a theology college. There were other things as well, partly because we wanted to train mainly young people, give them skills, so when they left school they could get employment somewhere. Um, I wanted the local community to own the college, so it was important to listen to them and see what they thought the college should be teaching. So we did a fascinating survey amongst the local community. And as a result of that, we introduced new courses, such as, for example, agriculture, because people were asking um, for that. Um, so it's lovely to see people who've maybe not had much schooling, um, little opportunities for learning, for studying, people who'd never go to university, um, being able to come to the college and, and get learning, whether it's computer or English, you know, some of the shorter courses that we did so that they get a skill and then some of the students they would start with the English course and then go on to the computer course and then say well I don't want to leave the college so then they go on to maybe the agriculture course or, or even business, business administration something like that so it's quite exciting to see people developing and most of our students when they left us managed to find employment later and so that's actually very rewarding so I had to also build up a, a team of tutors part-time tutors and uh, full-time tutors um, in the institute so you know building a team of people who worked happily together was also a joy because they were very supportive to me and I think the motivation of the tutors because that was increasing that that helped to also raise the the life of the college. And we know building up South Sudan is a, a massive job you've been there during 
war years yes i was there during the war years when i first went out i was there when the comprehensive peace agreement was signed in 2005 i was there when south sudan became independent in 2011 and i've been there when the renewed war civil war started um, just over a year ago so i've been through all those different phases of the life there just what kind of difference does that college and those courses make to to those people you know just living in that situation what would their chances be in terms of getting jobs and so on without that kind of education well what people say in south sudan is that education gives hope i think that's what people discover when they get training and when they get skills it means they can do something with their life because they're Um, understanding themselves is very low as to what they can achieve you know they look back to very limited if any schooling um, some of them Uh, English is increasingly being taught in South Sudan and is used as a language not just for business but the internet and all sorts of things like that so there are many many more people wanting to learn English and if you're going to go on further study somewhere else you're probably going to need English so the English courses are you know very important and obviously technology computers internet and so on like that many people are wanting to learn how to do that and um, you know NGOs who are out there are looking for people with computer skills or with skills in English or whatever it may be so there are increasingly opportunities for people who have had some training and you've been on a bit of a mission to increase the number of women students too I think yes very much so I mean we would love a third of students in the college to be be women we're, we're nowhere near that yet but each semester we are in seeing an increasing number of people coming but you know it's the lack of English which is a problem when most of the courses are actually taught in English okay. so the women tend to have to do the English course before they move on to one of the other ones. How unusual is it for a woman to be getting further education this kind? Well in Moridi we do have an adult education school which is run by the government uh, so that is encouraging adults who've not had much education when they were younger to go to adult school and they, they can go, do up to O levels really um, so some of the women are in those courses as well so we sometimes benefit when some of the people have finished there then they might come on to us just help us understand properly what's uh, happening in South Sudan who's fighting who some might be following it quite closely some might be getting confused because often we often talk about conflicts in Africa immediately as tribal conflicts and that may or may not be the main issue what what is who is fighting who etc well the present troubles that broke out in uh, December 2012 um, started off politically motivated. The president, who is a Dinka, sacked his deputy, who was a Nuer, and there have been tensions for a long time between the Dinka and Nuer. So although it was a political thing, they were vying for power, then the, the tribal thing came into it very much. And so we have seen uh, Dinka and Nuer fighting each other, and uh, many of the Nuer people are now in camps, in various places in South Sudan or with the, in UN compounds, you know, looking for protection. Um, for us in Maridi, we have six major tribes in Maridi. Dinka and Nuer are not one of those um, tribes. But because we take students from wider than the Maridi area, uh, particularly the soldiers, we've had a surprising number of soldiers and police who've come to study with us. And they could have come from anywhere in South Sudan. Um, so we actually found in one classroom you could have Dinka and Nuer as well as the other tribes, but all sitting together quite peacefully. And we you know even able to discuss with them the ongoing war and what they thought about it and how can we solve it and so on. 
pray for that target of one third of the students being women and especially for the new principal, staff and students as they continue the good work of building up Chima Christian Institute. Also pray for God to open up the right place and role for Tricia to be in ministry in the UK. Bishop Raphael Samuel and his wife Michelle have been missionaries in Bolivia for over a decade. Originally from Singapore and from Tamil and Malaysian backgrounds respectively, they visited CMS recently and talked passionately to Jeremy about why long-term mission is so crucial. It takes time to really get to know the people, get to grips with what are the important issues. Um, And it's a process in a sense that doesn't have shortcuts. And uh, every time you get to a place where you think that you know the culture and the people quite well, they come up with another surprise. And I think we've learnt over the years that um, there are no quick answers for anything. And what we perceive to be perhaps the right answers, over time we realise that they have a different way of doing things and it could be that their way is better. And so we've come to an appreciation of that. Now for short-termers, Uh, They can do certain things, but I think that it's a little different with uh, long-term missioners because they really come to understand the issues on on a deeper basis and are the transforming agents while they learn as well as being transformed in the process. So it's really a back and forth uh, process that enriches everyone involved. See, we're not trying to play off uh, long-term missionaries against you know, short-term short-termers. I think we see the value of both but we would like to see uh, long-term missionaries as forming the core of a partnership between the, the host church and the sending entity and around that you can have short-termers you know can come and do their contribution and leave but, but the, the core of the relationship I think should be between uh, long-termers and the receiving church. There's a lot of injustice in this world. The fact is, you know, the richer nations have taken the wealth from the poorer nations. And I would see long-term mission involvement in terms of uh, the richer nations giving back to the poorer nations what they owe them. Because this might sound very simplistic, But the rich are the rich at the expense of the poor. Now, I know that's simplistic. And I know that we can qualify that statement with all sorts of insights and show that it it might not be entirely true. But on a certain certain degree, it is true. And I think when when Christians from uh, richer countries come to poorer countries, they are a testament to the fact that uh, we want to give back what is yours. So I would, I would, you know, see long-term missionaries in that context. And also there is this, there is the uh, biblical theological dimension where, where we are called to, to incarnate ourselves and to identify with the passion and the cry of the people whom we are, are serving. And how do you do that? You have to spend a, a long time in the culture get to know the people, uh, find out how they've been treated in history, uh, what their gifts are, what their talents are, 
and to identify with them, you know, to, to, to cry with them, to advocate for their cause. And what's your vision and dream for the future for the church in Bolivia? I was recently struck by that um, tremendous uh, uh, vision which John received uh, in Revelations where he saw the nations of the earth before uh, the Lamb upon the throne. And I would see Bolivia uh, in the family of nations, totally redeemed and restored, worshipping uh, the living Christ. So that's, that's what's driving me. And I see the Lord raising a, a generation of people wholly devoted to the purpose which, which he has pre-established for the nation of Bolivia. And so we are uh, at this moment working with uh, university students trying to, um, to win future, the future engineers, politicians, captains of the industry to Christ uh, because we believe that uh, the Lord would use professionals as well as you know people who seek excellence for their lives. You know, he would use all these people to uh, bring about that Bolivia which, uh, which, which will be settled in Christ as they offer their gifts and their worship to our Lord as he's seated on the throne. So that's that's the sort of vision that's that's driving me. A vision of transformation um, in a country which is uh, full of challenges uh, in the area of corruption, uh, the wide divide between the rich and the poor, dishonesty in many levels. So the vision really would be of a transformed Bolivia. Please pray for Bishop Raphael and Michelle and for the dynamic leadership they talked about to emerge. Pray too for the partnership between mission agencies and national leadership to work on Bishop Raphael's priority of Christian discipleship. This month our reflection appropriately comes from the man who edits and publishes the communications from our long-term mission partners, Jonathan Self. Listening to these audio mission recordings of extraordinary people in mission, it becomes obvious that death and resurrection is a recurring theme in the world and one that we need to embrace. Trisha Week's work with people in South Sudan in their journey of learning is set against a backdrop of ongoing war. Education is hope, resurrection over death. Cory Vidon's work at Chiwoko Hospital in Uganda saves lives from HIV, poverty and death in childbirth, the third biggest killer in sub-Saharan Africa. Both Patricia and Corrie see resurrection as part and parcel of their work, not just a physical resurrection, but also an emotional and spiritual resurrection. As we journey with Christ, we move from death into life renewed. Scripture forces its readers to confront the implications of this death state when it says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Death is real, but so is resurrection, and we stake our very lives on it. It's either true or the worst joke ever. The Apostle Paul argues that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Trisha and Corrie, along with Raphael and Michelle, are agents of change and carriers of Christ's resurrection spirit, offering hope and renewed life. It's countercultural and contrary to the world's values of destruction and ugliness. Our challenge, then, is to be like them and Paul, willing to courageously live out all for Christ and pass on the promise of resurrection to all. 
Jonathan Self, CMS Link Materials Editor, wrapping up this month's audio mission. Join us again next time for more global and local voices from the world of mission.